Well, these days, it's pretty clear that we don't always know who's watching us. We don't always know who's recording us. We don't always know who's listening to us, do we? So you're so quiet now, it's obviously you get that, right? You get that. About two and a half years ago or so, sometime in 2019, I think, I had read a news story about a couple who was sitting in their living room, enjoying one another's company after dinner, having great conversation, and talking about all kinds of things that couples do when nobody else is around. Suddenly, she gets a phone call, the woman gets a phone call from a coworker. She answers the phone. The coworker says, hey, I just want you to know that whatever kind of Amazon device you have in the house, uh, we just want you to know that I just received an email recording the last several minutes of you and your husband's conversation. She said, no way. What was I talking about? He began to, word for word almost, tell her exactly what they'd been talking about. She immediately unplugged the device, threw it in the disposal, no. <laughs> but we hear those stories and they kind of set us on edge, don't they? They can really, today, there's really no such thing as privacy, right? Privacy seems to be a thing of the past. Yet it goes further back than recent past. Scripture tells us more than from 3,000 years ago, the psalmist declared that God knows all. He declared, the psalmist declared that God knows when I sit and when I rise. He discerns all of my thoughts from afar. A lot of times we think our thoughts are really helpful as we're processing thing, but, things, but a lot of times when the Lord's discerning our hearts, they're probably self-motivated, you know, selfish motivations are making us think the way we do. God is all over that. He understands that. He sees that. He knows our rising. He knows our sitting down. He can discern even our thoughts. But this fact is even more problematic than anything that Alexa or the NSA or Google can find out about you. Because the Bible tells us quite clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that bad news actually gets worse, right? Because the wages, what we earn for being sinners, is what? Is death. That's right. We need Psalm 32 this morning. In Psalm 32, David starts out telling us, King David tells us it's a miskill, which means it's wisdom literature because it's a psalm, but the word maskil means to instruct, to make one wise. Anyone here need a little more wisdom? Three of you, fantastic. <laughs> we all need wisdom, and the Lord tells us that if we would ask for wisdom, He would what? Freely give it to us. So ask often, right? Now, many believe that Psalm 32 should be read alongside of Psalm 51. You recall that Psalm 51 is actually David's great psalm of repentance after his affair with Bathsheba. You can learn more about that in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. While his armies are off battling, King David decides to stay home in Jerusalem and committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. Now, the problem was that one of his best army officers, Uriah, was the husband of this woman. So, he had him put out in the front lines and murdered. David, of course, like many of us do, think we have hidden sins that nobody knows. And so David believes this sin is hidden, and he tries to hide it. So, of course, Bathsheba's staying with him, becomes his wife. But one day, to his surprise, the prophet Nathan walks up to him and confronts him. This led to David's humble confession found in Psalm 51. 
there in verse 13, he promised God amidst his confession. He promised, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Let me read that again. He promised in the middle of his confession, he promised to God stating, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. On one hand, we're excited that sinners will turn to God, but he says, will return to you. He's speaking to those that were once near to God. And that could be us this morning, in, in small ways or greater ways. Why is knowing God and His ways so vital for each and every person here today? You know the answer, it's simple. Because knowing you're a sinner means you understand your need to turn to God or turn back to God, repent of your sins so that you can receive the forgiveness you so desperately need. Psalm 32 is believed to be part of David's fulfillment of that promise of instructing sinners. And so we're going to listen to the instruction from David this morning, thousands of years later, that we might, in some small way or some great way, return to where we need to be. The title of the sermon this morning originally was blessed is the one forgiven. But I change it slightly to how blessed is the one forgiven? Not question mark, exclamation point, right? How blessed is the one forgiven? We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, which will declare to us the double blessing of forgiveness. David talks about a double blessing of forgiveness. Then we'll look in verses 3 through 7 at the powerful process of forgiveness. God takes David through this process to lead him to forgiveness. And thirdly, in verses 8 through 11, we'll look at the blessed outcome of forgiveness. Here's the main idea. Confession and repentance of sin leads to God's forgiveness and our restoration and our ultimate joy. Let me read that again. Confession and repentance of sin leads, leads to God's forgiveness and restoration and our ultimate joy. Anybody up for some ultimate joy this morning? Great. Well, let me read to you Psalm 32 to whet our appetites for what God has for us. <clears throat> David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer, as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen to that. What great, great teaching God has for us in his word. And I pray to minister to you with this morning. Apparently, Alexa didn't like that I made some comments earlier. 
the poor dear. Bless her heart. How blessed is the one forgiven. How blessed. Let's look at the double blessing of forgiveness. Now, verses 1 and 2 are the heart of Psalm 32. We will give a little extra time to these first two verses. Take a look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Note that the one blessed, that word means happy, happiness, deeper than that even. The one blessed is anyone who receives the Lord's forgiveness. Instant happiness. How great was that day, that moment, when you knew that you knew that God forgave you. The word blessed, by the way, is also the first word used in Psalm 1. In fact, no other times prior to right here in chapter 32, Psalm 32, was the word blessed except for at the beginning of Psalm 1 and at the end of Psalm 2. This word first used in Psalm 1 is a bit different, quite different in fact, than the way it's used here. What I mean by that is it means much of the same, but, but more. In the context of Psalm 1, it declares blessing on an ideal man, a perfect man, one who never sinned and always walked in God's ways, exactly, perfectly. Jesus is the blessed man that we see in Psalm 1. David prophetically writing, must have had a thought about the one who would come so perfect. And we as sinners desperately need his perfection, his performance, his excellence bestowed upon us. Hence, Psalm 2 ends with the promise, blessed are those, all those who take refuge in him. And that blessing is what Psalm 32 is all about. Psalm 32 declares the ultimate blessing of our great God is available to sinners just like you and me and is reserved for all who have not walked perfectly in God's ways but have repented and know the joy of forgiveness. To emphasize God's blessings of absolute forgiveness and the cancellation, the wiping away of one's debt for sin. He declares in verse 2 another blessing, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Friend, can you think of a better way to encourage you and me than to confess our sins and look at the promises of God that we see as the blessed ones in verses 1 and 2? Is there a better way to encourage us to just follow our Lord closer, to see his beauty and his magnificence, to cast down our idols. This double blessing of joy comes from knowing that God is for you and that he is gracious and forgiving. Okay. All right. Can you think of a better way to be encouraged than to confess your sins and know they're forgiven? No, we can't. This double blessing of joy comes from knowing that God is for you and that he is gracious and he is forgiving. And that when God forgives you, he's not fickle, doesn't change his mind. When he forgives you, you, for, you receive the forgiveness unto perfection. He now sees you as holy as Christ, though he's working all of that out in your sanctification. Be encouraged in who you are in Christ this morning. Of course, everyone wants to be blessed. Everyone wants happiness, right? How happy, how blessed are the forgiven. Now, to display the value of the forgiveness, because we forget that. We forgot how wretched we really are, how depraved we really are. And we think, oh, not, not too bad. God wants us to remind us of three words that are used for sin in verses 1 and 2. 
In verse 1, the first word we discover is the word transgression. Transgression literally means rebellion. This speaks of our rebellion against God and His authority. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, is what we hear. Blessed is the one whose rebellion has been forgiven. You see, God created us in His image to live on this earth, right? To represent Him, to be a representation of Himself. And so, He directed us, directs us as people to follow Him exactly, perfectly, and care for His image bearers and His creation. But we know the story, don't we? Rather than obey God, we've all been traitors destroying our lives, ruining others, living as rebels against our great and holy God. And what makes our transgressions so vile is not just that they're against one another, created in God's image, but they continue to stack up as completely, directly sinful against our Creator, every one of them. Oh, they deserved that. King David said it best when he confessed to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51.4. Alexander McLaren, a 19th century scutsman, he's a pastor, he captures the force of this word transgression in his commentary on the Psalms when he writes this, Speaking to us, created beings, you do not understand the gravity of the most trivial act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature, or against the law written on your heart, or against, excuse me, or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature, or as a crime against your fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God Himself. Wow. Now remember the blessings, but we're contrasting the blessings of the forgiven with our depravity so that you and I would worship and glorify and magnify our God, that we would be most likely to forgive and be gentle and careful towards others because of the great forgiveness we've been given. If you've been forgiven little, you'll, you'll forgive little to others. But if you know how much you've been forgiven, it's easy to forgive your spouse, your children, your neighbor, your parents, your old best friend, whoever, right? So our first word is transgression. Let's look at another one. Let's not let ourselves off the hook yet. The second word we discover is the actual word itself, sin. Now, this word sin has to do with falling short, missing the mark, being a sinner that is an utter failure. You've missed the target completely is the idea. In the ancient world, the term sinner was used in the archery to describe the person that sees the target, they see the bullseye, they draw back, and they let go, and it just goes, whoop, doesn't even get near the target. They would shout out, sinner, sinner, in those competitions. And you'd be like, oh, me? It means missing the target, falling short. This is a great illustration of sin. We try to hit that mark of obedience with Christ, don't we? Sometimes we try harder than others, but we miss the mark. You're saying, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that's true. Turn it to somebody later and ask them sitting next to you, how that's going for you. They'll say, hey, I think you're missing the mark. You're sitting in my spot. <laughs> now in verse 2, we see yet another word for sin. We saw transgression, rebellion. We see sin falling short, and now this word iniquity. Now iniquity, iniquity is a bit different. It can mean waywardness, but it also means crookedness and actually can mean perversion. 
And it usually is a word to describe intentional, premeditated sin. Our premeditated sins alone tell us we're guilty, don't they? Though this is just a hint of how complex sin is, the facts are in and we're all jacked up. We are an absolute mess. But wait, you know it's coming. There's hope. There's hope. You see, the most important truth to grasp in verses 1 and 2, I may have already turned your eyes away from the most important truth. It's not in the types of sin, but that every one of these sins, every one, every sin in the Bible can be forgiven. How blessed is the one forgiven. Wow. In verses 1 and 2, we saw three words for sin, and now they are matched with a second set of three words in both of our verses that describe what God does with sin, the sin of those who repent to Him. God forgives it, He covers it over, and He refuses to count it against the sinful person. Again, instant pardon, instant forgiveness. Though I'm guilty of it all, instant pardon. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That is, lifted and carried away. Before sin is confessed like David, it can be a crushing burden upon us. But once repentance takes place, God lifts it and carries it away. As far as the east is from the west. And listen, he remembers your sin no more. Much of our insecurity and guilt comes from past failures, either that we haven't confessed or that we have confessed and we don't understand the doctrine of forgiveness. Pardoned. As if you've always obeyed. We're all familiar with the hymn written in 1873, It Is Well With My Soul. Let me just read a stanza to you. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Our second word has to do with atonement. Verse 1 tells us, Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. In the Old Testament, the blood of a sacrifice covered the sin of the people, which turns God's wrath away and restored their relationship with Him. And they had to do this over and over and over and over with us. The ultimate sacrifice has taken place, and it's been finished. As the final words of our Savior declared. Our third word describes what God does not do, does not do. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Do you see that there? This is a bookkeeping term. How many accountants and bookkeepers do we have in here? Okay, both of you. That's great. This is a bookkeeping term, and it means to charge something to an account, right? It means to charge something to an account. When God forgives you, there is no charges. Your sin, your account is wiped clean, paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are in over your head, dead in trespasses and sins, drowning in the debt that you could never repay, but your balance by the grace of God has been erased. No late penalties, no extra fees, PIF paid in full. 
This is, the, this is the same accounting word that Moses used way back in Genesis 15.6. Back in Genesis 15.6, Moses used this to describe the, righteous, the righteousness of Abraham that he received by faith. He tells us in Genesis 15.6 that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He didn't have to do anything. God gave him the faith to believe, and God rewarded what he gave him in such a way and counted him as righteous. You see, in God's accounting, he erases sin and adds Christ's righteousness to those he blesses. I'm telling us this again because it's vital that we understand that we get so caught up in the law, which is excellent and needed to guide us. But when we cross over further those rumble strips or into the concrete median, we're being warned to get back by the law that we've been pardoned, that we've been forgiven, to keep a short account and surrender to the Lord. Why is it essential for us to understand that God erases our sin? Because this is called saving faith by no effort of your own. In Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, and I encourage you to reread through that, Paul connects Genesis 15, 6 that I just read about Abraham believing God and God, God counted that as righteousness to him. And Psalm 32 connects the dots to teach that salvation, forgiveness, is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by works. They say, man, I've heard this for 50 years. Great. How's it affecting your life to forgive, to live for Jesus, to surrender all to thee? That's why we need to hear these things over and over. In 2 Peter, in the first chapter, he goes through these things. He's reminding them of these things. I already know you know this, he says, but I'm telling you again so that you never forget, and I'll continue to tell you until they take me away and put me to death. These are the implications of the gospel for us. Do we understand that? The beauty of who God is and what he's done on our behalf by no effort of our own, and we put our trust in him by faith alone. By not counting sin against us, God declares us to be righteous. What a blessing. I know my heart a little bit. It's pretty nasty. But the Bible tells you a bigger story. It's way worse than I would ever tell you. This blessing is from God's hand. And as Romans 4 tells us, it's not a reward. It's not something we earn for doing something. He gives it to us, though we are yet sinners. Christ died for us. It's the heart of the gospel. It needs to be banging around in here all day in our hearts and minds that we would serve our King and give our lives fully unto Him for His glory. So who receives this blessing of God's forgiveness? The end of verse 2 tells us the kind of person God forgives. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. What in the world does that mean? Tune in next week. In whose spirit there is no deceit. The idea of deceit is not about lying to others although we are deceitful in that way, or can be, or have been, or probably will be, right, in some way. It's not about lying to others. That word deceit there is about lying to yourself and to God. You're really not shining yourself on, and you're definitely not shining God on, right, is the idea. Blessed in the, is the man whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, as we read today, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
So how do we lie to ourselves? Anyone? Well, let me give you some examples. We lie to ourselves when pride causes us, you and me, to blame others for our sinful behavior. Because in my mind, I'll never be as bad as that person, what they're doing to me. Really? Whenever there's tension or conflict in a relationship, it's always whose fault. Go ahead and point, right? Somebody's. Sometimes we can lie to ourselves by thinking God does not know of our secret sins, much like David was trying to do. Oh, we, we've been traveling away from home for a while, haven't seen the family in quite a while. Oh. We can deceive ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. We can deceive ourselves by focusing on the external, what we let others see, or when we compare our morality, how good we are compared to others. Somehow we're always better. At least I am. I don't know about you guys. We can deceive ourselves by thinking that this psalm is ridiculous. It's got to be for somebody else sitting in here. But friends, remember where we're going. Remember, we're talking about the blessed one, the one who is blessed. We're talking about the joy and the blessing of forgiveness for those who do not lie to themselves. We can be so self-deceived that we try to deceive God, even though He knows more about us than Siri and Alexa and Google, the government, or what somebody's cell phone records or camera picks up. We ignore our sin. We can pretend it didn't happen. And we think we're hiding it from our Creator. But deep down, we really know He sees, don't we? And since God loves us, He will let us know that He sees it. This is where David now turns from this longer section of the double blessing of forgiveness. Again, comparing this beautiful blessing of forgiveness to the tragedy of our sin and seeing, whoa, the blessing is phenomenal to be forgiven for all of that and so much more. So this is where David turns from the double blessing of forgiveness and describes this powerful process that he used in David's life to bring him to forgiveness, to bring him to repentance for forgiveness. In verses 3 through 7, David explains how God would not let him ignore his sin. I'm not, nah, I am letting you run with it, but you'll see. I'm not going to let you go forever like that. So David explains how God would let, not let him ignore his sin, how his own inner turmoil led to his confession, his eventual confession, and his repentance, and of course, God's forgiveness. The process began with David's stubborn silence. This is often the case in our own heart. David would not confess his sin. He knew it. He wouldn't confess it. But he kept on sinning as if nothing was wrong. But God wouldn't let him get away with it. Verses 3 and 4. David says this, listen. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He's feeling physical problems as a repercussion of his sin. We think we're getting away with it, but there's all kinds of other taxes that are taking place that we don't even see and may not know until one day. And we may not be able to turn that tax around. We may live with that pain and suffering, though forgiven. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Though my gro- through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I 
A few weeks ago, I told you about a friend of mine, Jim Johnston, who has written, uh, began writing of the five books of Psalms, um, actually laying out his sermons and turning them into commentaries. Uh, let me encourage you, Crossway puts those out, let me encourage you to check those out in the Psalms, they're amazing. Much of this, again, is based on Jim's wisdom that he received from the Word. I, I love what he puts forth here. He says, look, regarding this verses 3 and 4, that you kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. By the way, he lives in Phoenix now. He didn't. He lived in uh, the St. Louis and Illinois area before he wrote this, so it's interesting to me. But he says, this is a perfect description of the misery of living with a guilty conscience. If you are a Christian, this describes the way you have felt when you would not confess your sin to God. Man, up all night, pressure, losing joy, messing things up worse. Physically, David's bones were wasting away. He was drained and weak as if he was camped out in the Phoenix sun all summer long. Indeed, friends, sin and its guilt have a very powerful effect on our health and vitality. Come up to me sometime and ask me, if you dare, the story about my health about 15 years ago and what I went through because I was holding on to things I should not have been holding on to, being frustrated and angry and bitter. It was eating me alive. And you know who you are. That was a joke. Physically, David was wasting away. Mentally, David felt the heavy weight of God's hand. He felt the burden of his guilt all day long. And when he laid it down, when he laid down, he could not find rest. Why is that? Because God cannot and will not continue to ignore sin. But in his grace, he places his divine pressure upon us right where we need it. Often very severe pressure until we acknowledge the sin, confess it, and return to Him. And that's what we see next. David finally surrenders under pressure and confesses his sin. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave my iniquity, the iniquity of my sin. Again, just like that. Brothers and sisters, if, you're, if our great God's hand is heavy on your conscience this morning, you need to know that He loves you. And He's drawing you back to where you need to be. You need to think about it as he's making me miserable so that I return to him. Because he knows that's the safest place you can ever be. Under the shadow of his wings. Because we can be stubborn and sin sinful, God forces us to turn to him in some ways. He wants to heal us and he wants to forgive us. I mean, we could see that he virtually dragged David into a confession. Over and over, he wouldn't let go. What grace that is for us. What a beautiful picture of God loving us all the way home. God disciplines those whom he loves, according to Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 declares it's for our own good. Let me just say this, the time to start worrying if you're in sin is when God's not putting pressure on you. You may be in the middle of something and you think, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. You may find one day that He still isn't putting pressure on you. Beloved, the guilt of our sin is forgiven through Christ immediately. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 
For the believer, Christ pays all those charges. On the cross, He died for sinners and laid down the ultimate payment for the guilt of everyone who would turn to Him. David's own experience of God's offer of forgiveness was so powerful that he encourages God's people by stating this in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, David says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at this time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here David is thinking of godly people like him who have given into temptation and sin, people like you and me. David knows that when we are ashamed and angry with ourselves because of sin, he knows all about that, and he knows that temptation will keep us quiet from confessing it to God and others. We don't want to face him. We don't want to admit what we have done. I'm afraid. I'm really, really afraid. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we run off and hide when we hear God coming, walking in the cool of the day. Dear ones, if that is you this morning, running from God, if that's you right now, let me encourage you in your heart right now and in your mind, you need to call out to God while you still can in that sense. Scripture lays out a lot of warnings to that end. And please listen, if you do not confess and repent of those sins that the Lord is bringing up in your heart right now, you might not be able to do it tomorrow. Sin is deceitful. And if you don't do it now, it will harden your heart. Oh, I don't know, John. Those are heavy words. I got this under control. Besides, if I do that, I got all these other repercussions that'll make it worse. When is the best time to repent of your sin? That's my only question. I had a friend years ago, not too many years ago, come to me and tell me, John, I am hardening my heart towards my wife. Okay? I said, stop doing that. He goes, I, I don't know, man. Came to me again within a week. Hey, pray for me. I am still hardening my heart. How's that going? It's not going good, but man, I, I'm having a hard time letting go. Well, week after week after week after week after week, I saw him. And he said the same thing. And his concern for his hardened heart was becoming less and less and less. And he blew it up. He blew it all up. He blew it up with his wife, his kids. Within a year or so, he lost his job of 20-something years with a major corporation. Turned to the bottle, DUIs, just completely. I love this man. We, he rarely returns phone calls or texts now. It's not that he doesn't love me. I think it has to do with some of this, very clearly. So friends, let me ask you as we get closer to closing here, what will you do when you sin? Will you try to hide it? Are you hiding it? Will you confess your sin to the Lord and repent today? You see, if you hide your sin and refuse to confess, you will get to a point where you can't confess your sin, as the story I just told you reveals. Your conscience will become calloused. You will prove you have an unbelieving ticker, unbelieving heart. And you may very well fall away from God as if you were truly never His. Hebrews 3.12, 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I'm sure most of us know others. As the years go by, people that you believed were Christians, it's dangerous. We're not there yet, pastor once told me. David has shown us how God would not let him ignore his sin, and he won't let us either. How is our own inner turmoil leading us, hopefully, to confession, repentance, and forgiveness? That's the powerful process of forgiveness, God's heavy hand drawing us, pressing us closer. We can rejoice in that. Now we see the blessings that follow when you and I confess and repent our sins in verses 8 through 11, the blessed outcome of forgiveness. Please, John, turn the page and keep giving us hope. We'll see guidance from God. We'll see enduring love, and we'll see a great ending of joy. In verses 8 and 9, God promises His guidance to David and to you and me, the reader. In verse 8, David states, that God makes it very clear that he's pressed this upon his heart. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. David's heart is to, to help, to take what God has given him and give it to others. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like horse or a mule, a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it won't stay near you. In contents, context, excuse me, this guidance concerns godly living, right? From the counsel of God's Word, the Holy Spirit teaches you and I the Word of God. And He teaches us to obey and walk in righteousness. And He knows we are sinners and that we will stumble. And we learn that God doesn't leave us or forsake us when He loves us. He puts the pressure on. That's good news. He wants us to understand His ways and walk with Him, not in our own will, but His. Next, God promises not only guidance, but enduring love for those who confess and trust in Christ. Listen to this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Do you see how we need to focus from seeing the blessings of who we are in Christ and then, and then recognizing, oh, there's snares and pitfalls, and I need to confess soon and recognize this guidance that God provides us, this enduring love that causes us to run to Him and enjoy Him. Steadfast love is God's covenant love. He doesn't change his mind. His commitment to his people remains. This sweet refuge is ultimately provided only in Christ, as we've stated many times. The man who bore our transgressions, our sins, our iniquities, uh, our own deceit, so that we could freely be forgiven. This may sound like a broken record, but I believe it's important and vital for us to be reminded regularly. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we'll do that in just a few moments, remembering who we were, what we've done, but more importantly, who He is and what He's done. Like a parent, God waits for His prodigal. Many of you have seen your prayer requests. Many of you have privately told me about prodigal children, and you're waiting for them to return with open arms always ready to welcome them, forgive them. We want to surround the prodigal with the love of Christ and our love, and that's what the Lord does for us. He surrounds us with His love. Guidance, enduring love, and the final result that we see in our text this morning is found in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
These expressions to be glad and rejoice describe spontaneous shouts of joy at what God has done for us. It's it's worshiping God with the heart of who we now are in Christ. We are like Christ. So when you fail and God forgives you, stand up and shout for joy, either in your heart or let everybody know you're wackadoodle. It's okay. Church, the more we understand that we are that dumpster fire of sin, the more joy filled we will be by the gift of forgiveness and Christ's righteousness bestowed upon you for all time, forever and ever. Don't let the temporal knock you about. This is forever with our great God. Focused in Christ. Focus in Christ. Oh, but all this stuff and this and that. Focus in Christ. Because in Christ, we are welcomed and we are loved. All of our sin has been taken away. It's as if we've never sinned at all. As if we've always obeyed perfectly. Jesus' perfection for the Christian, it's your perfection. If you know God has forgiven you, it keeps you greatly encouraged, doesn't it? Or it will from now on. It'll keep you shouting for joy at who you really are. God is so good to us. He knows more about us than Alexa, Siri, the government. Yet, He will forgive. He will forgive. And His complete knowledge of you His complete knowledge of everything about you, sins and all, means his forgiveness for you is also full and complete. Knowing all of that, he says, that child is mine. Complete forgiveness in Christ. Praise his holy name. How blessed is the one forgiven. Great question. But it's really, how blessed is the one forgiven? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the truths that we've seen.